This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Managing Director of the Defense Innovation Unit, Mike Brown. Roger and Mike discuss DIU's efforts to help the military attain more innovative technologies and ensure that the United States can win in the future of warfare. Mike Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. Good to be with you again. Great to have you on. You are the Managing Director of the Defense Innovation Unit, affectionately called here inside the Beltway as DIU. Just take a minute to explain to our viewers and listeners what the Defense Innovation Unit is, and then we'll get to how did you land the job to lead it. Sure. Well, set up uh, almost seven years ago now by then-Secretary Ash Carter. Uh, as he observed that so much is happening uh, from an innovation standpoint in our commercial sector with our private companies. How does the military get access to all of that? So he felt we needed something as a complement to the traditional acquisition system, buying aircraft carriers and fighter jets. How do we get access to the latest piece of software, a small drone? So the Defense Innovation Unit is set up to bring in commercial technology from private companies and get that adopted quickly by the Defense Department. And we pride ourselves on bringing capability into the Defense Department in one to two years, not not in decades. Um, we're going to get to that in terms of this notion that the Department of Defense needs help to access our greatest innovations and technologies that may not be intuitive uh, to many people. But before we go there, Mike, you, of course, are not some veteran of the D.C. policy community. You didn't kind of cut your teeth professionally in the Pentagon or Capitol Hill. You're qualified for this job because you've led companies before. Eight years serving as CEO of Quantum Corporation, which is a computer storage company, and then a couple of years as CEO of Symantec Corporation, which is a cybersecurity software firm. Those are big jobs. Uh, Symantec's well-known uh, to anybody who uh, is concerned about protecting uh, their computers and having a cyber hygiene. How did you go from a successful CEO in the world of software and technology to now trying to figure out this problem that Ash Carter, former Secretary of Defense during the Obama administration, was trying to solve? Well, one of the things that uh, uh, Ash Carter was concerned about uh, going back to uh, 2016 was what were the Chinese doing with their investments in Silicon Valley? What were they investing in? Uh, what, what were, why were they investing? So uh, that came to me through my predecessor, the director of BIU at the time, Raj Shah. And he said, gee, I need some help with this problem. Do you think you could help? And uh, this really opened my eyes to, oh, my goodness, we really need to wake up. The Chinese have a very systematic long-term view about ingesting technology legally and illegally. And uh, doing this study, uh, which looked at the fact that the Chinese were investing in, at that time, 15% of all U.S. technology deals that are venture-backed, really opened my eyes to we need a better way to compete with the way the Chinese are modernizing their economy and their own defense department. So it was, it was basically doing that work that uh, led me to be thinking, I'd like to be doing something in this space. And then two years later, I got asked to lead the Defense Innovation Unit. Amazing. So prior to Rajah, your predecessor in this position leading the Defense Innovation Unit, prior to him reaching out to you, uh, where you had this White House Presidential Innovation Fellow and you were doing the study, were you aware of 
the Chinese footprint in Silicon Valley? Has that been something that you encountered in your various positions as CEO? And if you were aware of it, were you concerned about it? Or was it only after uh, you were reached out to to study this that you kind of pieced it together? I wasn't aware. And if you roll the clock back uh, six years now, 2016, I would say most folks uh, in the U.S. were not really aware of China, China's plans, uh, the fact that their aim is really to extend their own uh, uh, national power, which in their views of that mean that uh, the liberal world order that we've come to appreciate that's ensured peace and prosperity since World War II is not really in their plans. They don't want to join that as much as replace it and create their own sphere of influence. So, no, I wasn't as aware. I was aware, as many of us are, that uh, they were inclined to steal IP. So, Symantec, as an example, did not have development capability in China as a result. But beyond that, I really was pretty clueless. And I think a lot's happened in the last six years to make more of the uh, business community and Marinoff public aware of what China's plans are. But I would say even today, this is underrepresented in our national conversation as a threat, especially the fact that China wants to displace us as a technology superpower. Beyond that, they want to use the technology they've brought to, uh, to China indigenously to set standards and replace the jobs and industries which are based on high technology. So yeah, we're going to get to that in, <laughs> in the jobs industries and China's uh, ambition and kind of how that informs what, what we need to do. But I remember when we first met, it was kind of Silicon Valley area. Actually, it was outside of Palo Alto, outside of Stanford University, and you were just taken on the role of DIU or it was just prior to that. When you talk to your former colleagues, your fellow CEOs and other entrepreneurs and, and leaders in tech in uh, the Silicon Valley area, do they get you? Do they say, what's happened to you, Mike Brown? Or are they saying, attaboy, we needed someone like you? What's the feedback you get you know, from the general kind of prevailing culture uh, of which you left before entering uh, the world of government and defense innovation? I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's a growing appreciation that we need to pay attention that no country even compares to China in terms of the amount of cyber uh, theft that's occurring and industrial espionage. So that certainly has the attention of Silicon Valley and executives in the other ecosystems. I think now we're starting to see more articles that are written for folks paying attention as to what China's broader goals are. But I'd say we're still uh, trying to figure out what is the U.S. response to that and be coherent, not only in the Defense Department, but across the interagency to include state commerce and other agencies about what our, what our coordinated U.S. response should be. And that's qu quite an undertaking how to get the U.S. government organized and, and, and focused and kind of working off the same sheet of music. But in terms of the Defense Innovation Unit, as you were explaining it at the outset of our discussion, for those who know the history of Silicon Valley and what made that valley, the Valley of Silicon and all the innovation uh, that really allowed us to enter the digital age, it might have been counterintuitive that the Department of Defense needs someone to help them penetrate that world. Take us through a minute as to how we got to the point where a few decades ago it was the Department of Defense funding 
that really got Silicon Valley going and built this rich culture of entrepreneurship and innovation and investment to now, here we are, you've been doing this for a couple of years, uh, in the 21st century, the two separated so much that the Department of Defense didn't even know how to get back in to the world of Silicon Valley, Mike. It is an amazing irony. If you go back to uh, 1960, uh, a third of the global R&D, a third of global R&D was defense-oriented. That's the Defense Department and the traditional defense prime spending on that. That number today is now, you have to round up to get to 4%. So think about how the world has changed, where defense was leading technology development, really being a first mover, as you mentioned, creating the semiconductor industry at the height of the Cold War with the space race and what we were doing to miniature electronics for nuclear weapons. Well, you go from a period where defense is leading in so many areas and leading from an investment standpoint, being an early adopter of technology, to now many of the technologies the department needs to modernize, AI, cyber, autonomous systems, biotechnology, that's being led by the consumer market in many cases. And so when the consumer market is leading versus the defense department, now we have to figure out a way to uh, access uh, what's happening. We're not creating uh, what's happening. That's now, what's were, we, were we victims of our own success? Because ultimately, that's what we want. I mean, here I'm coming to you from the, the Reagan Institute, Mike. Right? We love when, if the government has to spend money, and certainly the Constitution uh, allows for, it, uh, you know, for the federal government to spend money on national defense. So if we're investing in national defense and spurring innovation, ultimately, we want that innovation to go on its own and, 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 and to become its own private market that's not dependent on government dollars. So that would be a sign of success. But in terms of national security, it's been somewhat of a failure, right? Well, I look at it, I look at it this way. Uh, there is always a role for government. I think I didn't appreciate this much uh, when I was in uh, Silicon Valley leading companies. There's a role for government for the riskier research, what really advances us from a science and technology standpoint. Vannevar Bush, after World War II, recognized with President Truman, hey, we have to keep this going. What is this? The flow of dollars from the federal government to our universities that really creates technology and keeps us at the forefront of science. So that's been a key to how the U.S. has maintained technological security since World War II. It's the creation of our national lab infrastructure, DARPA, uh, so many things that have given us uh, innovations that have led to economic prosperity in the private sector. Uh, come from government-funded research. Why? Government can put out uh, that money to advance science and take on the riskier projects. Our private capital backers don't really want to provide that function. Venture capital is not interested in basic science, private equity even less so. So we really need this as a complement to our very strong you know, venture ecosystem uh, to be able to make sure we stay at the forefront of technology. We're setting the standards. We have the companies based on that leading edge technology that create the prosperity that we're used to. So I very much uh, am a fan of uh, the, the private sector. That's where I came from. We need to leverage that as much as possible. But it doesn't do everything. And we need to recognize the government role in terms of ensuring uh, the leadership that we want to have in the next few decades in science and technology that allows that for that economic prosperity. But, but where did we go wrong, right? Because the, the fact that we needed a DIU, a Defense Innovation Unit, to try to 
get the Department of Defense to build bridges into these innovative companies that are leading in all these areas, and we'll talk about the technologies you're working so hard to deliver to the, the, the Pentagon and the military. You know, the fact that we didn't have the, the, those connections, right, and that whether it's robotics or autonomy or artificial intelligence, you have to go outside the five-sided building that is the Pentagon to get there. Was it... What happened? Like, how, how did we not have that? I think there's uh, a couple of things that happened. Uh, number one, uh, we won the Cold War. So the peace dividend uh, uh, was great for all of us. Uh, as Secretary Gates uh, just said in an, in an editorial in the Washington Post, we've now taken our holiday in terms of defense of the United States, and Putin has now declared that holiday over. So we have adversaries in the world. Uh, they don't uh, respect the values that we have in terms of democracy, freedom of speech, and those things that we cherish. And they're going to be trying to create their own world order based on autocracy. So we need to be prepared to face adversaries which are much more capable, frankly, than the Soviet Union was uh, was capable of. And in that, uh, we now have a shift in technology where the consumer world is leading that technology. So we have to be aware that we have to reach outside to get that. The Defense Department isn't creating that technology. And the third is we haven't adapted our processes within the Defense Department, which, as you know, were set up by Secretary McNamara. That was state-of-the-art in 1960 from Ford <laughs> Motor Company. But that's not the same processes we should use to buy a software package, field a small drone, uh, use digital wearables to uh, indicate the health of our um, sailor, soldiers, airmen. We need a new process that's more agile, that really adapts to what the commercial market is doing. Because we can't ask innovative young companies to work in the same system that Lockheed or Northrop Grumman does. They're not going to wait a decade for us to write requirements. They're not going to work with the federal acquisition regulations. There are other things that we can do, which I'd love to share with you, but we have to adapt. Now, I call it a fast follower strategy. We have to be able to follow the technology quickly. Today, with respect to commercial technology, we are a late follower. That's not a that's not a prescription. For oh, I, I want to get to the fast follower strategy, but first, tell us about the experience. I mean, I think of you as a, as a almost like this diplomat that has to take the Department of Defense, which, for the reasons you just outlined, is is a hard place for business to to work with, right? Private sector to work with, particularly those who are not already entrenched, and get them to sign up for and to participate in uh, defense acquisition and, 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 and a relationship with the Pentagon. What's your methodology? Where have you been successful? And what's the reaction? How, 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 does, it, how does a conversation go? Take us through that. Well, we have to do two things at the same time. Number one, we have to make it easier for companies to work with us. So I'll talk about that. That's where our successes are. And at the same time, we can't be satisfied with the uh, the process that we have from the McNamara era. So we have to work on reforming that. So that's where the fast follower strategy fits in. In terms of the successes, we've basically uh, incorporated a process that is commercially based. How do we maximize competition and how do we minimize the amount of the time an individual company would want to spend supporting a defense project? So how can they easily participate? We call it the commercial solutions opening process. It's very much like a commercial process. One, it doesn't start with requirements because we don't need to tell the commercial market what to build. We have a problem. Let's see what the commercial market can deliver. So we start with that. 
We, uh, again, maximize competition, bringing in as many suppliers as we can who might have a solution. On average now, that's 40 for every project that we do. And then a quick down select and test uh, those solutions in a military application. Uh, we call that a prototyping process, not because the technology isn't mature, but we're testing it to see if it works in a military application. If we go through that process, the authority we operate on, other transaction authority, allows us to immediately start scaling into production. So we've learned uh, over time, what does it take to make a successful project and how can we get that scaled quickly? So speed, scale, clarity, and 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 not getting mired down in, in the red tape and bureaucracy. Mike, what's more difficult? Convincing the commercial uh, player to enter the world of the Pentagon or to make the Pentagon be willing to be hospitable to the commercial player? Both are big challenges. You have to have <laughs> a, a lot of patience on moving the Pentagon process. That's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but as it relates to working with companies, if we can show them that there is a path that is rapid and has access to uh, large DOD contracts, we're finding an increasing number of companies that want to work with us. Last year, we worked with proposals from over 1,100 companies. That was a 10% increase from the year before. So the word is starting to get out. I don't think DIU is that well known yet, but it's starting to get out that there is a way if you work with DIU because we qualify DOD as a customer. What does that mean? We make sure there's an urgent problem, there's leadership support, and budget. And if, if those things are lined up, then we've You're got gonna... a project that can result in a successful yeah, well, we, we should talk about how you measure success because 1,100 companies sounds great, but you can also uh, make an argument that it's about dollars awarded, not in terms of number of companies. Let's just focus a bit on the technologies. You've mentioned a few. DIU has six areas that you focus on in your portfolio. Artificial intelligence, autonomy, cyber energy, human systems, and space. All of those, I take it, are areas that the Department of Defense and military needs to reach outside its traditional industrial base. Many of those companies, com uh, commercial companies, reside in, in and around Silicon Valley or other hubs around the country. I know you have hubs elsewhere. Um, I imagine those are all the areas that China is competing and seeking to lead and change the standards, as you referenced before. Take us through a couple of tangible examples from many of those six that really personify how DIU is trying to be a game changer in terms of the Department of Defense getting these capabilities, these platforms to deliver uh, an advantage on the battlefield of the future. Yeah, the hard thing is picking which ones. I'm, I'm going to, let, let's do three of them. One, digital wearables. So you, uh, for those of you watching this, you can see I'm wearing a digital watch and a digital ring, an aura ring. These you can buy off the shelf anywhere. That's feeding in uh, some information about my uh, bio data, my uh, temperature, my uh, blood pressure, oxygen levels in the blood. And it's keeping a database of what does that look like for Michael Brown uh, over time. Using that information, we can tell if you're coming down with an infectious disease uh, up to 48 hours before you're going to feel the first symptom. Imagine if we use technology to assess the readiness of our soldiers or sailors or airmen before the mission, before a Teddy Roosevelt that had to pull into Guam because so many people were sick. In fact, just this alone, this technology would have cut down the number of infections on the Teddy Roosevelt by two-thirds. So 
we can isolate those people who are coming down with something. Of course, we applied this for COVID, uh, and we enrolled over 10,000 folks, in addition to me, in this study. But it really works for any infectious disease. Our body tells us with some of these changes in our metrics uh, before we're going to start to feel sick. A game changer in terms of readiness. Uh, and and just, a, just a footnote on that. The mindset, perhaps in DOD, before the Defense Innovation Unit and this recognition, the need to pull in commercial solutions was we'll just build it ourselves. We'll just go to our, our industrial base. And, of course, that oftentimes is a recipe for getting it years, if not decades later, and also at a cost that is not competitive with the commercial sector, right? Well, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, I'm sure if we talk to the folks at one of our defense primes, they could have told us, yes, we can build this. But you're absolutely right. Why not leverage what's happening in the commercial sector? And this uh, used uh, artificial intelligence uh, to be able to make the most out of the algorithm. What biodata is going to tell me first that, uh, that I might be sick? Uh, the second uh, one we use, small drones. We call it the Blue UAS program, Unmanned Aerial Systems. So the situation we face is that uh, the U.S. was asleep as this small drone industry took off. The U.S. developed the original technology, but China was very adept at uh, stealing technology and uh, creative in, uh, in applying what they saw around the world. And now... 85% or 90% of the world's market of consumer drones uh, is based in China. So 95% of consumer drones is produced in China. That is the know-how and the manufacturing. And of course, this has great commercial application, right? But yeah. so as we're seeing elsewhere around the world, the conflicts, Ukraine being an example, the military application is very real. Right. And we're not going to be comfortable with that supply chain through China. In fact, now the Congress has prohibited us from buying Chinese drones. Those drones, 75% of the market shares held by one company, DJI. Those phones, phone, those drones phone home. So in other words, the Chinese, if they care to, that DJI can look at any mission uh, the military would have flown these drones and that, that's, that's obviously not very good for operational security. So we said, why don't we try and harmonize some requirements? We took a program of record, an army program to field small drones. Let's try and harmonize some requirements and invite the Air Force in to watch us and the Marines to watch this program because these commercial technologies are not service specific. We don't need a different drone for the army versus the Marines versus Navy. Uh, and let's aggregate the buying power across not only DOD, but the federal government so that we're starting with a small base globally. What if we concentrate that base among some qualified suppliers so we can make them successful? So the Blue AS program was a way to start adapting to be more current with uh, the commercial product cycle. Again, these drones are coming out every 12 to 18 months. We don't need to wait a decade before we field the next one. And why don't we harmonize the requirements and aggregate the buying power? So now we took the first five qualified drones uh, for the Army program. The Army selected one of those, but we put all five on the GSA schedule. So now anyone on DOD can buy, the Department of Homeland Security can buy, Customs Border Patrol, Department of Interior, anyone in the government could buy those. Let's start to make those. Just, just to unpack what you're saying, Mike, because what I think I hear you building into this, this project 
project is there's recognition that, hey, the commercial market is dominated by China. You know, over 90%, you said. And actually, one company commands 75% of that market share. So how are you going to convince a non-Chinese company, a U.S. company, to actually invest and build a business within the United States. There's, it, it's so behind the curve in terms of market share. So what you're saying is you had to, if I understood you, not just get one military department, but get the entire Pentagon, actually an entire federal government, to focus on a source so there'd be a business case for a commercial company to invest and build drones. That's exactly right. And part of the benefit of DIU is we have folks from the commercial world coming together with the military. So we understand what commercial companies are. How hard was that? I mean, did it was it just hard to find that vendor, to find someone willing to do it? Or if they said, hey, I'll, I'll build a, gov- a company that's going to be profitable selling to government. If I get you know, non-government commercial business, that's fine, too. Yeah, the vendors want to know, is there going to be significant volume? So from their standpoint, they're excited about the fact that this could be more than an army program. Other parts of the military will buy the same drone and other parts of the federal government. So they're looking, as you alluded to, Roger, to the business case. How does this become worthwhile? They're willing to go through the process of qualifying with the military if we can show them the, show them the money. We have to show them the volume that comes on the other end. So I'd say we had good support from the uh, vendors. Then it's a challenge of making sure that our the military, uh, uh, the different service branches working together, and then resolving, frankly, the policy questions. As the Congress tells us, you can't buy Chinese uh, drones or Chinese drones that use Chinese components. The Congress doesn't specify what do they mean by Chinese components. So we work the policy issues of which components are really critical, like a flight controller, which ones are not so critical, like a capacitor. So. We need to sort through all that to make sure that it's kind of taking this notion of real uh, of decoupling and making it real world, right? When should we allow our markets to be dependent on a Chinese source, and when should we not? And (laughs) you're living that just in terms of how do you build this drone? That's exactly right. Let's go to one more example: commercial satellite imagery. So. uh, there's a different type of technology other than optical, which is what we've used for satellite pictures for years. Uh, before we started the broadcast, we were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the U.S. showing the satellites of the Russians putting in the, uh, the nuclear uh, installations in Cuba back in 1962. There's other technologies now that give us other sensing capability, in particular SAR, Synthetic Aperture Radar. It's a radar technology, not an optical, that allows you to see through clouds and at night. So we started working with a number of companies back in 2017 as this technology was coming to the forefront. And now there are private companies launching constellations of satellite in what's called low Earth orbit that are really going to blanket the globe and give you a much better real-time view. It's called the revisit rate over a particular part of the Earth and allow you to see what's happening. This was a game changer in the conflict in Ukraine. Before the invasion, we were able to uh, use commercial satellite imagery to show not only our allies, but the world through the, the media that the Russians are engaging in a very large buildup. And despite their you know, glossy videos of we're, we're de-escalating, we're putting tanks uh, on train cars back to Russia, we had the satellite imagery to say, no, you're not, you're a liar. Um, this was really key in pulling people together and is still being used by Ukrainians today in terms of understanding the movement of Russian forces. So 
this technology available commercially, we want to make available, obviously, not just to uh, our NATO allies and, and Ukrainians, but this gives us visibility around the world, watching the South China Sea and other hotspots, North Korea, to see what's actually happening on the ground. This is fascinating, Mike, because space, of course, is, is that one area that has seen this just huge growth in commercial investment and focus. It's a purported to be a trillion-dollar sector. Um, in the world of the Pentagon, the world of the military, it's actually an area where we've wit witnessed some significant disruption. Think about the types of satellites that were big, highly classified, and cost so much money. What I hear you saying is that you can get a better picture of what's going on on the ground, or perhaps as good a picture of what's going on on the ground, without it relying on one huge asset that costs, you know, how many X times more than, you know, the commercial solution that you've described. And the world has seen it. It's not only has operational value to help a warfighter, this is having strategic and political value. Value from the standpoint of the Russian narrative, you know, Vladimir Putin's narrative was discredited immediately because the whole world saw these images. That's exactly right. And even better, these companies want to sell this data to us as a service. So the government does not need to build the satellites, maintain them in orbit. <laughs> the companies are buying the capacity on rockets, again, provided by the commercial sector, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. They're putting these satellites in space. We just need to buy it as a service. It's a phenomenal value for the taxpayer that we need to be taking advantage of. When you go ahead and talk to a military department or one of our intelligence agencies that would in the past perhaps procure a satellite you know, and tell them, hey, we don't want to buy it, the satellite. We're just going to procure a data as a service. What's the mindset? Isn't there some sort of national security argument saying, listen, I get this is good, I get this is the way the commercial world operates, and I get that it's pennies on the dollar. But when it comes to national security, we got to own this thing. It has to be ours. We can't simply uh, absorb the risk. You know, the lights go out for some commercial company. It doesn't cost lives in the way it does in national security. How do you respond to that mindset, which, I, as you can tell from my question, there's, some, you know, there's reason behind it. We're not adapting fast enough to a mindset that says we need this capability because it's a complement to our um, exquisite national technical means. We're, not to replace, it's a complement to that. But we've got to have that because if we don't, we're not giving our commanders on the ground the visibility that our adversaries have. So the part we have to recognize within the Defense Department is we're not controlling the diffusion of this technology globally. We might have controlled that with our large government satellites. Of course, that's classified and the world doesn't have access to what we can see. But the world does have access to these commercial satellites. And if we're not using this capability, our adversaries are. We and, and, and in an era of competing resources where we need to do a lot of things, perhaps just spending it on the commercial solution would have free up funds elsewhere. I mean, that's a big part, I would expect, of why the value add when you brief the Secretary of Defense. Hey, if we take this route, it's going to be pennies on the dollar. We get a capability, and now you found more resources to place it in things that 
you can't go to the commercial sector for. I mean, to expand on that. I mean, there's, there is some sort of fiscal benefit here, too. Completely. In an era where we don't have the budget in defense expanding to the extent we'd like, this is a way to stretch the dollars. And we need to continue to implement what the Congress has told us to do for decades. We need to buy what we can and build only what we must. So there are, of course, things that are not available in the commercial world, an aircraft carrier, uh, a missile defense system. But there are plenty of commercial suppliers of things, as we just talked about, digital wearables, small drones, commercial satellite imagery. I could go on and on. All the AI software, cyber software. There's so many things that we can be buying. And in that case, we save dollars, as you just talked about. We're leveraging all of the uh, volume that happens in the commercial world selling to businesses and consumers. We get to keep up with the latest technology, in some cases buying a service so we don't even have to invest in the assets. We need to be taking advantage of that fiscally so that there is more money left over in the defense budget for those things we must uh, build ourselves. So the model, you get a better capability, you get it faster, and it should cost less. Exactly. You mentioned before the fast follower strategy. Bring that back into this discussion now that you've outlined for our everyone, Mike Brown, director of the Managing Director of Defense Innovation Unit, of how this is uh, the strategy you have to get others to enter this space. Yeah, as we talked about before, we need a complementary system for commercial technology to what McNamara introduced that was very sequential and basically relies on us planning what we need, sometimes for a decade or two. It took us 20 years to plan the requirements process for the F-35. No commercial company would ever think you could plan something for 20 years and then build it and think it's going to meet the, the need that you set out doing. The commercial market moves way too fast for this. So we need a complementary system. I call it fast follower. Those technologies the Defense Department leads on, you could think of as first mover. Semiconductors used to be in that category. Hypersonics would be there today. But if you're talking about AI software, small drones, satellite imagery, digital wearables, on and on. These are commercial technologies. The fast follower strategy says we need to follow those in the commercial market, but fast. And what would we need to do to make that happen? Just four things. One, create organizational homes for them. They're not service specific. So we need a home for where's the expertise going to be for assessing small drones as an example. We don't have that in the department. So therefore, we proliferate requirements and vendors. Well, we tried to get a handle on that with the Blue UAS or small drone program we talked about. This needs to be done for many commercial technologies. So we simplify the picture both for DOD and vendors. So organizational homes would be uh, number one. Second, we don't need the requirements process. We don't need to tell the commercial market what. Yeah, tell us what a requirements process is because you, 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 it's become, you know, anyone who's been listening to this, it's the. You know the the enemy here. It's it's the problem child. The requirements. So so why why are the requirements so bad? It, it makes logical sense if you're going to tell a Lockheed or Northrop Grumman what you want in the next aircraft or, or uh, uh, yeah f fighter jet. Um, you spend the time detailing out specifications. Here's what I'd like you to build. That makes sense for defense-only technologies. It makes no sense for commercial technologies where the solution is already built. Imagine if the Defense Department were telling Apple how to build the iPhone. We're going to spend 10 years and put all the features in and write the specification. It's, it's just nonsensical. So 
All we need to do is say, this is a capability we need. Think about a capability of record instead of program of record. I'm going to need small drones for the foreseeable future because that's going to be an important warfighting capability. So I better know how to assess it and acquire it and feel that. So that responsibility could be put with an organizational home. And I don't need the requirements process. I probably need a much shorter process to validate a need. So that's, that's the requirements process is all about specifying in detail what should be built. Not applicable for the commercial market. So that's the second part of uh, the fast follower strategy. The third would be employing the best commercial acquisition methods. The good news is DIU has really already been a part of that. Uh, we have really pioneered what you can do with non-consortium other transaction authority. Sure. Uh, it's in a process we call commercial solutions opening. How do you mirror a commercial process for acquiring things? You maximize the competition, you minimize the burden on any individual company. If 40 companies have responded on average to every project that we've uh, uh, let out, most are going to get a no. Companies don't mind that if you can tell them to the no quickly after they've, uh, before they've expended a lot of uh, or invested a lot of time in the process. We need to expand the best acquisition process further to make sure we've got an e-commerce platform. Imagine if you it was a one-click buying uh, system for the Pentagon where I could field these small drones. We're a long way from that. Yeah. We need to we need to be better at buying as a service, and we need to move to the DevSecOps world of what the department the Pentagon would call continuous ATO authority to operate. So some things we need to change to make it easier to field these technologies. So many of those things reside with changing the Pentagon culture, huh? All three that we've mentioned are all within the secretary's purview. The fourth one, we need Congress's help. Consistent budget for these capabilities. We're only used to budgeting for programs of record. Think about if I'm doing small drones, I really need a program of record that lives and dies every 12 to 18 months. Well, that's kind of ridiculous also. Think about a capability that we're going to fund on an ongoing basis for the assessment and fielding of current technology. So that flexibility in the budget to not specify it's a specific program that's going to last for 20 or 30 years, but a capability where the vendors will change as the best that's evaluated is selected every 12 to 18 months. How refreshing to be able to move at current speed uh, and feel the best to our military rather than ask them to work with technology that's two or three generations behind. If we make those four changes, organizational homes, an alternative to the requirements process, using the best of what we've already learned about commercial acquisition and a consistent budget for those organizational homes, you've got the fast follower strategy implemented. And we can be modernizing the department starting in one year. We can field capability at DIU in one year, not the decades it takes the Defense Department to move. And when I talk to combatant commanders, I uh, just talked with Admiral Acolino and Indo Paycom uh, a month or two ago. That's what he's looking for. How do I change the capabilities I have in one to two years? I can't wait a decade for new capabilities. Mike, what's the prospects of those elements of the fast follower strategy uh, being adopted? You, you've been at this for some time as leading DIU. You know how hard it is to change the bureaucracy and the approach to acquisition. You can have a combatant commander who wants this, but as you know, it's the service secretaries and the Secretary of Defense who control this at the end of the day. Uh, what's the temperature in the, in the Pentagon when it comes to these proposals? 
I think there's some interest in uh, hearing about the proposals. I'm excited that uh, Bill LaPlante uh, hopefully will soon be confirmed as the uh, Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. So I think uh, in partnership with R&E, ANS could really drive this forward. We've already had some conversations. Uh, so I'm looking forward to his support and some of the service secretaries to make this a reality. So you're thinking that the senior leaders in the Office of Secretary of Defense and the military departments, Secretary of Air Force, Navy and Air Force, uh, and Army will will be kind of positively oriented this way. And, and, and what about the prospects of the Congress changing the way it does business with appropriations? Because that's what you were getting to. Uh, obviously, a, an uphill uh, challenge. I'm excited to see that there's PPB&E reform on the table. As you know, uh, there's a, a commission that... Uh, so this takes the McNamara way of, of putting together a program and budgets uh, from the 1960s, and now they're looking to finally uh, upgrade them nearly a century later. Right. The PPBE program planning, budget, and execution. It is the process that really started with McNamara. Yeah. So Congress has asked the department to take a look at that. The department has its own efforts underway. I'm glad that's on the table. We need to move quickly. Our adversaries are not waiting. Our uh, adversaries have a much faster way of implementing things. That's easier if you are a totalitarian leader. Yeah, we don't the, want their system, but we want their speed. There we go. The autocrat uh, has a way of getting people to do things quickly, uh, although they can often make the wrong bets, which uh, leads to their inefficiency. That's for another discussion. Before we close out this conversation, Mike, I want to get back to this discussion about how you measure success in terms of bringing in companies and getting in you know, these new commercial capabilities uh, so our, our warfighters can benefit. You mentioned before like 1,100 companies. Is the metric the number of new entrants or is the metric the total dollars awarded? Or if you listen to some venture capitalists, maybe it's not even the number of companies, nor is it the total dollars awarded. It's what was your biggest single award that brought in a new entrant? Talk about that for a second in terms of how you think about metrics for success of bringing innovation into the Department of Defense. Yeah, there's a lot of supporting metrics, and you name them. But the number one metric that we focus on is capability in warfighters' hands. If you haven't delivered something that makes a warfighter's life better, then you've, you've just engaged in an exercise uh, that uh, uh, doesn't lead to the right result. Uh, so we don't view ourselves as a rapid prototyping organization. That's what we do. A rapid acquisition, that's what we do. We're about delivering capability. Over our history, we've delivered 35 different capabilities uh, to warfighters, like those we mentioned uh, before in the broadcast. And, and many others. We started 75 projects uh, last year alone. There's so much that we need to do. We feel like we're just skimming the surface. The capabilities delivered to Warfighter is the ultimate result. But as you alluded to, part of that is what happened to those vendors in terms of production contracts, how big were they, and what was the follow-on. We've just undertaken a study to see what that looks like. So our companies that we've introduced now have $3.5 billion of total contract ceiling value, half of that from the projects we transitioned just in the last year. And that's four times uh, in fiscal year 21 what we delivered in contract value in 20. So this is an increasing measure. The, the investment that the department's made in DIU is starting to pay off, not only in terms of some capabilities delivered, but larger contracts. I'll just give you one example. A vendor we introduced, Anderol, 
which is working on counter UAS. So we talked before about fielding small drones. What do you do when those drones are coming at you? They develop technology. We introduce them as a vendor to the Department of Defense. Um, SOCOM, the Special Forces Combatant Command, has just delivered them a follow-on contract with a contract ceiling of $1 billion. So we're looking for more of those type of activities. We just saw one of the AI companies that we introduced, C3 AI, uh, working on predictive maintenance for aircraft, now get a follow-on contract from the Missile Defense Agency to generate synthetic hypersonic missile trajectories. We can't defend well, that's a lot of big words there. <laughs> you can't defend against hypersonic missiles if you don't know what the trajectories are. Direction they're going. Yeah, see where they are, where they're going. So they just received a follow-on contract with a $500 million contract ceiling. Not time to go through all the other examples. No, those are some good examples and, and, and certainly size and scale because it gets to um, a couple of the last questions I wanted to ask before we go to our lightning round. You were there at the Reagan National Defense Forum in December. We always appreciate your participation. You've been a panelist, always a, a key person that folks want to speak with and talk to. Secretary of Defense Austin was there, and he acknowledged that we have this problem. He called it the, this valley of death where you have entrance into the DOD marketplace, but they're unable to move from prototyping experimentation to what you've just described, which is these, these companies actually can survive and have a program of a scale that they can pay back their events, investors and, and continue to grow. When Secretary Austin asked you what you're doing with the Valley of Death, would you give him the answer you just gave me? I mean, would that satisfy the Secretary of Defense? Well, I think we'd explain to him that DOD, there's several valleys of death. Uh, some are when a company gets formed, when it's starting production. But the one that's DOD specific is we get a company successfully to prototype their solution, and then we leave them waiting while the budget process catches up. That's the one I have the highest urgency on fixing. Uh, that's what fast follower strategy would be meant, meant to address. Consistent budget for a capability we need that gets us. All right, so, yeah. so you've you've connected your fast follower strategy with the question the Secretary of Defense put forward to his leadership and the uh, broader national defense community at the Defense Forum. Last question before we hit lightning round. Because I would agree, Roger, with the venture capitalists who are critical of the Defense Department that not enough companies are getting through that process and not enough are getting the large contracts that we just talked about. That's what we're working on. At so Catherine Boyle, a venture capitalist we've had on the show, uh, works for Andreessen Horowitz, uh, focuses in part on investments in the aerospace and defense sector. While she's bullish and thinks there's so much that can happen, really uh, sharing your energy, Mike, also shared that time is running out, that the period of time that investors uh, would be willing to take their capital and put it into a, a company that was seeking to do business with government, specifically the Department of Defense, they're not seeing the return on investment adequately to justify continued investment. Do you think time is running out, Mike? I do. And that's why I have a sense of urgency for us to implement something like Fast Follower. We need to show more companies, big dollar contracts that come from the prototyping that we're doing. We're starting to see that, and we want to make sure that the investors know uh, which companies are uh, you know, putting points on the board. We need to make that more visible. Some are getting through, but we need to make that an easier process and we need more companies to come through because the department has to modernize so much faster than it's going. So we need to have a sense of urgency about, about getting this done. Again, 
there's a tech race on with China. Uh, so our attention may be in Ukraine with Russia right now, but the tech race continues with China. They want to displace us as a superpower. We can't wait to modernize the department. And the key is bringing in more commercial technology. We're going to transition to the lightning round, which is where we ask our guests to share their favorite book on Reagan, Reagan's speech, and Reagan quote. Before we do, I think I've shared this with you before, Mike, when I was asking a former national security advisor during the Reagan administration to explain to me the Star Wars program. You know, the uh, President Reagan and his administration's uh, strategic defense initiative, which of course uh, was a, a defense uh, project that many get credit with really imposing costs on the Soviet Union and led to the, to, to the fall of the Soviet Union. This national security advisor said to me, it really wasn't about defense per se. It was actually about unleashing the American entrepreneurial spirit into the Cold War space. And it strikes me, Mike, that a lot of what you're doing is just that. You know, the SDI for the 21st century with a far more complex challenge, as you've outlined, with China. Mike, share with us your favorite book on President Reagan. Well, the book I read recently had a big impact on me was from Clyde Prestowitz, who was uh, really from the Reagan uh, years and the Reagan administration. But he wrote a book called The World Upside Down, and it really talks about how fast things are changing. Uh, the fact that globalization really did not deliver all the benefits and now actually leads us into a more dangerous world. So that, that had the biggest impact on me recently. And you got a speech or a quote that you want to share as well? The favorite is the one that uh, you quote every year, peace through strength. That has got to be our watchword. I think that's uh, uh, as relevant today as when President Reagan uttered those words. Mike Brown, thank you so much for being on the show. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. 